this is Tom Pasello, the ROI guy, and welcome to the Evolvers podcast, sponsored by sales enablement platform provider, Mediafly. Our mission, to provide you with the independent insights, community advice, and tools to guide your sales enablement journey and fuel your professional evolution. My guest today is Matt Hines. He's the president of Hines Marketing, a keynote speaker, author of several important sales and marketing books, and host of Sales Pipeline Radio. Matt held various positions at companies such as Microsoft, Weber Shandwick, Boeing, the Seattle Mariners, Market Leader, and Verdiem prior. Uh, and he formed the well-respected Heinz Marketing Consultancy almost 15 years ago, which is about the time Matt got on my radar with his great research and great insights into all things marketing and sales. Evolvers, please welcome the distinguished Matt Hines. <laughs> well, pressure's on now. Holy crap, that was quite the intro. Thank you. Yeah, you gotcha, you gotcha. So Mary Shea, predicting 80% of selling will be remote, not just now, but going forward. We're not gonna return to in-person meetings. Uh, this has been a common question I've been asking. Matt, what's your take? Uh, I certainly think that this pandemic in 2020 has been an accelerant of moving um, more selling remotely. It is not new. This is a trend that was happening already and that I think is in the category of, you know, sort of uh, slowly and then suddenly. Uh, we've been talking for years about companies moving from field sales to inside sales. We've been talking for years about, you know, the impact that social selling and digital selling can have. And, so now we were forced to do it. We were forced to make that move in a greater degree this year. And I think a lot of companies are realizing we can still hit our number. We can still engage prospects. In fact, prospects might prefer some of these formats and channels. But we've been using Zoom and podcasts and digital channels for what, five, 10 plus years maybe? We've yeah. been doing face-in-face -face interactions as humans for tens of thousands of years. So we're pre-wired to want that actual face-to-face interaction. I mean, you know, Tom, you and I were kind of looking at each other on a video as we record this, but like, I miss seeing people in person, love my family, but I want to see people other than my family for a while. And, you know, it's easy to say that remote selling is all it is now when you can't go to a conference, when you can't get in front of your prospects. But once events start to come back little by little, and once your competitors start attending them and meeting your prospects in person, there will be a significant percent of the old world that comes back, especially for enterprise sales, especially when long-term relationships are at play and a critical part of hitting your number. I agree. I think there's definitely going to be a snapback and a competitive advantage if you are able to do those meetings effectively in person. I think what's going to make it really difficult is hybrid whether that be you're responsible now for hosting a hybrid event or a hybrid uh, meeting to keep the remote folks engaged while you have the in-person folks engaged and doing both uh, is definitely something I've experienced a lot of. And it's a challenge. I think it's, it's a challenge, but it's also, I think it's really exciting. I, I think the, you know, when you, when you think about those in-person events last year and before that really only represent a percent of your customers, a percent of your prospects, a percent of your addressable market, only those that could actually have the time and the wherewithal to get there. Those were the ones you engaged. And yeah, you maybe had the content available on demand, but who was really looking at that, right? So now you're able to engage a much higher percent, virtual and in person with your audience. But as you just referenced, you can't think of virtual as an afterthought. Like mm -hmm. smart companies and those companies most successful in the hybrid model moving forward 
are going to essentially be operating two parallel related events. One is in person, one is virtual, and they're going to need the associated resources to make them both successful. Yeah, and you've got to optimize across both. Now, I, I know you've sat in on a lot of um, virtual meetings. I've done the same. There's a lot of sellers that we're used to doing in person. And when I sit in on their virtual sessions, even months now after we've, we've been locked down, um, they're still throwing up presentations. They're still kind of trying to fill a void in this online meeting room with endless linear presentations, demos showing every feature and function possible, almost like they're on the clock to show as many slides or show as many features and functions as possible. Yeah. Um, have you seen the same thing with kind of an old style approach that we've almost regressed in some ways? I, I don't know that we've regressed. I think many companies just haven't really evolved very much. And I think that we're at the point where at the beginning of this pandemic, I think we were all just shell-shocked. It was nice to be able to engage with people from our home basement offices elsewhere. Earlier this week, I back-to-back -back was attended two events that were almost identical mm -hmm. in terms of the platform, in terms of the format of the presentation. One I would hardly paid attention to. The other one I was attend. I I I've actively attended the entire time. The biggest difference, and this is just a tactic, was chat. Hmm. Right. The difference between me watching a show, like the first one, was basically I might as well have just been watching an on-demand YouTube video, right? And maybe it was recorded. And then why am I there? Not you know at ten o'clock on Tuesday anyway. Mm -hmm. The other event, there was a presenter but there was also a parallel chat and the parallel chat where all the attendees commenting on and highlighting what they like, sharing their own perspectives on the content. And even better sometimes when you do those events, when the presenter is in fact not live presenting, if you could record the presentation and have the presenter interact with the chat, have the time and attention and headspace to interact with the chat live as well. Now all of a sudden you have a much richer experience. You have much richer content in ROI for the audience and I'm engaged, like I'm literally responding, I'm engaging with other people, I'm sharing ideas and getting ideas from them. That one simple change, just having that chat feature available can make, is night and day different. And I think that it's, it's, it's one of many examples of, of interactive engagement and community features that make in-person events so successful historically mm -hmm. and are gonna make the hybrid model successful for brands moving forward. I completely agree. I think, you know, the research says a goldfish has a nine second attention span. We have the attention span much less than that now. Uh, eight seconds was what Microsoft researched uh, several years ago, as many years ago, actually. And I would imagine it's even shorter today. You've got to have something to keep someone's attention on a constant yeah. basis. That could mean um, voice inflection, visuals, chat and interaction. And I think that that's something that has to be worked into every trade show that's virtual, every presentation that's virtual. It can't just be a linear kind of uh, fire hose consumption because like you said, you can just sit and watch that on demand. Um, in terms of visuals, um, we've worked a lot as well on making sure that presentations are different visually. Do you find any, any difference or any opportunity there? Oh, for sure. I think, you know, when you're sitting in front of someone at an event, um, you know, like watching them on stage, you get to see a lot of inflections. You can go from them to the slides. Just being in person offers a lot more stimulus. Mm -hmm. If I'm just watching someone on screen and I'm just literally just watching the up their, their sort of chest and up in their head, that gets monotonous pretty quickly. So I think you do have to produce it a little more like a show. One of my favorite 
examples of that is a gentleman by the name of Andrew Davis, or he goes by Drew Davis sometimes. Yeah. One of the best, I mean, pre-pandemic, one of the best marketing keynote speakers I've ever seen. And he did, a, I've seen him do a couple completely virtual keynotes that are essentially produced shows. And he, they are so well produced, he's, he's going back forth with different takes. If you've ever seen Alton Brown do um, Good Eats on, on the Cooking Network or Food Network, very similar format in terms of style, in terms of entertainment value, you couldn't help but watch the whole time. Yeah. And ironically, he's the other, he's also the guy I think of when I mentioned, when you think of that goldfish, you know, I mean, he, he, he has a talk that he talks, he, he uses this concept called the curiosity curve. Mm-hmm. And he, he brings up the goldfish and he says, you know, goldfish only have attention span in nine seconds. And people say that, you, you, that, that humans have less. He said, not true. You give people something interesting and they will watch forever. Mm-hmm. You give them four seasons of the crown to binge on and they will not go to bed. True. Right. True. And one of the examples he shows is he says there was a video. There was someone at an ad agency that started a video and the entire premise of the video is how many rubber bands can we put around a water pump? And he said, you want an, a dumb idea that has no, maybe no societal value. But he said, like, the number of people that watched for hours yeah. <laughs> as they kept putting, like, when's it going to break? What's going to happen? How many is it going to take? So his point is, people will continue to pay attention as long as they still have questions. Mm-hmm. If people tune you out, if people stop watching or stop listening, it means they no longer have questions. You have answered everything they're interested in. And so if you look at the way scripts are written, if you look at the way entertainment is developed, you look at the way movies are run, even look at his presentation where he didn't show the end of that watermelon video till the end of his presentation. He leaves questions unanswered. Mm-hmm. That's, those are some of the secrets to keeping people's attention, especially in this virtual world. Yeah, so think in terms of vignettes with cliffhangers and, and things that keep you kind of engaged on Netflix or even flipping Instagram as we go through the phone, talk about attention spans, right? We can sit through social media, we can sit through Netflix shows, but they are story told and written and kind of composed a certain way. And don't think that Instagram doesn't know what to show you next. That's right. They've done the studies, they're using AI consistently to make sure that they're keeping that curiosity in play. Now, when we talk about the buyer's journey, um, part of the research from Mary Shea and Forrester not only spoke about remote, but how much is being conducted digitally, um, mm-hmm. not even with sellers involved. Uh, you know, some are saying 65% or more purchases will be completed digitally without a seller involvement by 2025. And that's Gartner's bold prediction. And that's yeah. B2B purchases. That's not consumer yeah. purchases. You know, what do you think about the predictions? And I know it, as a marketing leader, you've got a strong opinion on this. Well, so on one hand, it doesn't really matter what we as marketers, we as sellers think. What matters is what buyers are willing to do or what they are prefer to do. And we certainly see more and more buyers comfortable with digital channels. More and more buyers feel that doing a, a virtual selling motion is more efficient for them than having to meet with people in person and do the whole song and dance. We're also seeing research and evidence that buyers are willing to spend more money on a virtual sale. Like we've, you know, we've always seen the excuse that what well, this is an enterprise sale, like no one's gonna buy this online. I saw research recently that a percent of buyers, an increasing percent of buyers are now willing to spend up to a half a million dollars completely remote, without sight unseen, without just basically just doing it online, put on my credit card, it's fine. Now that's, that's an exception to the rule now. I want to see that credit card with that 500 
thousand. Someone's got an amazing limit, and yeah, uh, yeah that's that's some good credit. But but the point is that I think people like that whole the, the fallacy of like, well, this is a big considered purchase. Mm -hmm. People are going to do it without seeing me, and you know, like now, nah. like we're in a different world now. So that may not be everybody, and so but I think again, like if you understand your buyer, and if you can create enough value, and if you can get a commitment to change, like the means by which you conduct that transaction and that buying process is secondary yeah. to what's in it for the prospect and what they buy off on. And increasingly, because especially, you know, catalyzed by this year, we're comfortable doing these conversations. We're comfortable moving things forward. We don't have a choice. You know, as we record this here, you know, vaccines are starting to flow, but it's going to be a long time mm -hmm. before those reach critical mass. And so we are going to have restrictions in how we can operate for months to come. And I don't know anybody that can freeze their pipeline and freeze their business for months. So we're making it work. And I think we're learning how to get by. It doesn't mean the old world is bad and that we don't want that. I won't go back to some of that to your point. Um, but there, I think more channels are now open to us as productive, scalable, predictable sales uh, programs. Moving forward. Yeah. So we have to invest in our sellers. We have to make sure that they can create this incredible customer engagement experience, right? When they're doing it. Um, from a marketing perspective, we're seeing the trend that uh, particularly with younger buyers are being that are being surveyed where they don't even want to deal with the seller at all, right? They just want to point and click, you know, think of Carvana, think of Amazon, where you don't even need to refer to a seller. There's reviews, there's enough content, there's enough material, there's videos, and you can make the purchase decision completely on your own. What do you think of um, of that? Is this the true death of the sales rep that Forrester predicted some five years ago, or is it, you know, just, just, you know, a, a, a fallacy? You know, I, I worked at a startup a few years ago that was selling marketing and technology to real estate agents. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this was at a time when, you know, the MLS information was starting to go online. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of lazy realtors, quite frankly, that we're afraid of this, that we're saying, well, if you take the listings online, that's what, that's my value. I have the listing book and you have to come to me. And so if you put this online, what do people need me for? The smart realtors realized my job is not to be keeper of the listings. My job is to be a neighborhood expert. Yeah. My job is to know the ins and outs of where you should live because there's a million factors that go into that. And you can do all the research you want, but for pure, deep local knowledge, that's still a people thing, right? Yeah. There are still travel agents that operate that are very successful. Yeah, I've got a friend who's a high-end travel agent. Her business is great. And the advice she gives, stellar. So there is a democratization of information that, that Expedia and that Zillow and that, you know, a lot of other sort of sales and marketing platforms have provided. But if you, if you are no longer valuable as a seller, it means you haven't figured out how to create value for your buyer. What insights do you have? What reframes of problems can you share? How can you curate a stream of valuable content for your prospect that they didn't have, that they don't have either don't have access to or don't have time to go curate on their own yeah. that makes you still interested? Like that's your job. The sellers can no longer be transactional. No longer can they be the guardians and gatekeepers of commoditized information. If you are a subject matter expert, if you are a trusted advisor, no matter what industry you're in, travel, real estate, enterprise, SaaS, you can still be valuable and you can still play a dramatically successful role in selling. 
In fact, um, so my first sales job, official sales job, was as a realtor. I was mm, a really? day and a realtor at yeah. night and on the weekends, believe it or not. Yeah. Um, so I know this well. And um, one of the things that realtors did a great job of is something that Gartner's hitting on now uh, as the extension of Challenger, which is, you know, there's so much information out there. Buyers are overwhelmed by it and frozen in place in a lot of instances. So if you're able to help them make sense of all of that Zillow information that's out there as a realtor, if you're also able to help facilitate the decision-making process, make sure that there's consensus, filter through the data to, so that you're getting just to the right homes that are the right homes, bring consensus between the partners that are buying the property, and then facilitate that journey Yep. which is a difficult one when you're buying a home and making such a big purchase, a difficult one when you're making an enterprise purchase within the organization. That buyer may make a purchase like that once or twice in the career that they have at that company, and they don't know how to navigate that process, but you, you kind of do. Maybe unique for them, but you know that they need to go through a security review. You, need, you know they need a business case for the CFO in the organization, and you can proactively facilitate. You know, whether you're in your day job buying an enterprise IT solution or whether you go home at night and try to buy a dishwasher, you just want to make the right choice, yeah. right? You know what you need to get done. I need clean dishes. I need a safe, you know, work environment for my employees. The more information you have, to your point, like you can get very uh, inundated. You can drown in a lot of information. Like, what do you trust? Like, just because it's on the internet doesn't mean it's true. That's a whole nother thing podcast episode. No, let's not go down that one. Yeah, right. But, uh, but you know, you, but I don't, who do I trust? Who do I listen to? And ultimately we just want to make the right choice. We just want it to work. And really, if we're honest with ourselves, we just want to find someone we trust to say, just tell me what to do. Just mm -hmm. tell me what to buy. Tell me what's going to work in your experience. If you have experience and success, what, what's going to work? Yeah. And if you can answer that question and if you can find someone to answer that, if it's a website, great. But in most cases, there's still a person, there's still a team, there's still a brand that has developed that trusted reputation where it's, eh, look, different things for different people. But if you have trust, if you have trusted credibility with someone and you can provide unbiased information, they're more likely to go with you. I mean, there are studies that show that because you were able to help them commit to change, because you were able to give them insights mm -hmm. to make a choice, you are the incumbent. Your product and service is the incumbent. Whether or not you're the best selection or not, psychologically, I want to go with the person that I trust. Yeah, there's a, an incredible opportunity now. This isn't a, that, you know, the fact that people are going remote and digital is yep. actually good. In an information overload situation where there's uh, a bias called overchoice that comes into play, and with the uncertainty and doubt that people have all around them today in their personal lives and even in their business lives, you as the person that's going to help that buyer make sense of it all and make that right choice and be that trusted advisor, that's a unique opportunity and unique situation. And in fact, probably the biggest opportunity that's been in front of sellers, I think, uh, since I've been selling, um, you know, some 30 years ago. Yeah, and it takes a focus and discipline to do that well, which is why a lot of companies are never gonna get there. Mm -hmm. You know, if you wanna just do the spreadsheet and say like, I'm gonna make 4,000 calls a day and I'm just gonna churn and burn through my list and I'm gonna find the small percentage that are willing to take appointment and I'm gonna have someone in the Philippines just do that or I'm gonna have a software tool do that and I'm just thinking about this transactionally. Look, you, you do enough volume, you may hit your number. Mm -hmm. 
but you are doing scorched earth with the rest of those people. They see you as a commodity. They see you only be interested in your sale and not their outcome. And you're going to have competitors that are willing to invest in the relationship, to invest in the deal that might take a couple of years to close, you know? And so, you know, the, even with smaller deals, that trust, I mean, just because it's a smaller deal to you doesn't mean it's a small yeah, deal exactly. to your prospect. I was just going to say that. Yeah. So, 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 so if it's a big deal to them, how do you start to build that trust and how do you start to do that at scale? And I don't mean scale, meaning efficiently and lower cost. I mean, how do you create a business and a system and a brand that can have a trust building impact on more and more of your prospects? Yeah. Uh, that, that is not something that you do in a phone call. It's not something you do with a campaign. This is a culture change mm -hmm. and it's a discipline for an organization over a long period of time that time and again shows dividends and shows a more efficient, high value business. Yeah. So you, the whole organization has to be set up to be consultative, to be helping and not to be churn and burn selling yeah. essentially is what you're saying now, right? Correct. Yeah. So um, one of the other things we've seen in terms of trends that are out there is clip levels have been lowered on executive approvals. There's a bigger demand for financial justification with the CF no. There's COVID committees uh, that I know yep. we've run into. I'm sure you've run into in, in your practice. And we've had customers run into them time and time again now. Do you think this risk aversion and the, these kind of trends continue into 2021 and beyond? And what's your recommendation on how to deal with it? Oh, they for sure will. I think that, I mean, look, I, I started my business in 2008 when the market had tanked and there were a lot of companies that were pulling back on budget. They were pulling back on what they were willing to spend. All of a sudden, purchase authority went down uh, in the organization. You had to go up to that CFNO and try to get money. So we've been there before and in the very recent past. Um, and I, you know, we only a couple of years out of that, out of that quagmire, people started spending money like crazy again. And all of a sudden, instead of focusing on two investments, they're like, let's try eight, see which one works. So look, the market will get back to that. Not in 2021. You know, there will be, uh, there will be scars from the cash conservatism that happened in 2020 that will continue well into, if not throughout all of 2021. It is a good discipline to be in to really heighten the focus of your value prop. Mm -hmm. How do you make sure you are an essential service for your clients? How do you make sure that they understand the right prospect understands why they can't live without you, why they can't win, why they can't grow, why they can't scale without you? And to be able to define and quantify the impact of that on the short term, to say not just there's this two to five year value prop, what can you do for me in the first couple quarters? I realize it's not going to give me everything, but how do you start to move the needle for me? You got to make that case for your prospects or else it might be likely that they're like, yes, but not now. And that's not going to help you think, make you make your number. Yeah. And then Matt, we also know, you know, many of us sell subscription services. So this isn't just a one and done kind of thing. It's a continuous process, right? Because there's vendor consolidation. Renewals are going to be threatened. Right. And if you're hoping to expand an account, if you can't prove the value that you've delivered to date, how the heck do you expect to expand that account? Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's absolutely right. And I think that that's another reason why, you know, you got to make sure you're selling to the right prospect, someone that can benefit from what you're selling, someone that's the right fit, so that they will be successful and they will renew and you'll get your lifetime value. Just because you close the deal, if that prospect is not successful, they weren't a right fit to begin with. If they're not successful with you, they, you may get the money initially, but they will churn. They will be unhappy. They will tell others that your system doesn't work, even though they might not have been the right prospect to begin with. And that's where brands start to crack. And that is a very difficult hole to dig out of. Yeah, completely agree. So 
once a week you host an event for CMOs, an interactive kind of uh, coffee talk. Um, yep. Give me the official name here in a second. Um, with Latney Conant, who we've had yep. on the, the show before, I just had her on to launch her new book. Um, I know a lot of what you talk about there revolves around sales and marketing alignment. And, you know, as we've got these buyers who now flow even more than ever to, from digital to sellers to customer service, uh, you know, how do you make sure that everything stays aligned? And is that a, a kind of a hot topic that you get into in these weekly calls? Yeah, it certainly is. I think that, you know, there's, so first of all, yeah, thanks for bringing that up. We've been with, with Sixth Sense and with Latney, you know, what started as sort of a, like what a lot of things start as, just sort of by accident. Mm -hmm. uh, we now have over 800 CMOs registered for these Friday morning sessions and different topic every week. And it's a very community driven uh, conversation. It's not a presentation, it's real discussion, best practices and shares among CMOs. And a, a common consistent theme is how to get out of being just the marketing officer and to really become the chief market officer. Mm -hmm. Someone who's not just working on campaigns, but someone who's thinking about the addressable market, who's thinking about the revenue opportunity organization, who is not just participating in, but is leading the alignment between the customer facing teams, between marketing, sales, account management, and more. So I think that that is an opportunity for marketers to sort of step out of the arts and crafts department uh, sort of fallacy, right? Mm -hmm. And to really be revenue creators in the organization it is not an easy thing to do. And you, I think having executive buy-in that that needs to happen um, is, a, is a key part of it. But you know, if look, if you can align around objectives, if you can line around revenue metrics, if you can really clear on roles and responsibilities of who's doing what at an operational level underneath that, you're really getting somewhere. And there's no reason why the CMO can't be leading that charge. Yeah, and I know one of the big things is intelligence, right? Knowing what customers are doing and caring about, knowing what content is helping to kind of move the needle, content's near and dear to my heart. Uh, talk about that, the role of customer and content intelligence and that visibility. Well, it's key. And I think, you know, when we think about content, you know, I think Anne Hanley, who's, you know, at Marketing Props and wrote the book, Everybody Writes, you know, I heard her say once, you know, everything the light touches is content. Right. You know, the way your you know, way your reception service answers the phone is content. You know, their voicemail music is content. Um, the tone your salespeople use on the phone is content. This all feeds together. Um, and I think content also doesn't have to be just like the white paper. It could be a quote. It could be a stat. It could be a single infographic, you know, with a caption. And so I think understanding what your prospects need at different stages, independent of the channel, this isn't about what marketing sends and what sales sends. This is about what the buyer needs and what format they're going to be most receptive to it with. And so I think that gives you a greater diversity and a greater uh, utility of the content that, that, that brands create for their entire customer-facing teams. Yeah, and I think you've got to be willing to experiment um, with different forms and, um, and functions of that content. And then you've got to know and understand, is it being consumed is it moving the needle and then quickly be agile in doubling down on what's working. And I think even more than ever, quickly divesting of the things that might be old school that have kind of run their course and, and be willing to move on. Um, we talked a little bit about in-person sales and marketing conferences. I think we were at a serious decisions conference was the last time you and I kind of saw each other in person. Um, two years ago, was that? Must have been, yeah. 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 I can't remember if it's this last year or two years ago, but uh, time flies. Uh, you know, 
we're probably, are we going to get back to conferences in 2021 is a question I'll throw out there. Look in your crystal ball, the Matt Hines crystal ball, and then talk about the impact that's having on marketing, on sales, and kind of how you see companies being able to maybe work around us not being as in-person as we may want to be in 2021. Yeah, well, events will definitely come back. Um, I think that it'll be at least second half of 2021 before that happens. I think, you know, as we record this yesterday, the CEO of United Airlines went on record saying, I think we need about 60% of the population to be vaccinated before we get travel back to previous normal. Um, probably about right. And that is an enormous, think about the population of the U.S., that's an enormous undertaking that is going to take months. Sure. Um, so it's going to be a while before we get back to stuff. Will we, will we ever see, will we see anytime in the near future a conference like Dreamforce? Like 150,000 people from all around the world in a tiny neighborhood of downtown San Francisco? Maybe not. Yeah. Uh, will we go back to large national conferences? Sure. Uh, will be we willing to drive to an event before we fly to an event? Yeah, I think that like small local events are going to happen more quickly. But I also think this continues to be an opportunity for brands to rethink what events are, mm -hmm. right? It's not, look, if you're getting a bunch of people together to sit in a general session and watch your CEO give a product roadmap, like if I'm in the back of the room, I can't see her anyway. So I'm just watching the TV. I'm watching the big screen. I might as well be home watching YouTube yeah. Right? And I think now the bar is higher for people to travel where your boss is now going to say, well, are you, are you going? Cause you can learn. Cause you can do that on this screen versus are you going for the parties? I mean, like, why are you really going? And so the justification is also going to have to be greater, but boy, there are some amazing things you can do in a remote environment to create learning opportunities, to lean in on that curiosity factor, to engage people's need, not just interest, but need for community. Mm -hmm. Like if you're working from home, and you, you just kind of like there by yourself with maybe your fur baby or something like having an opportunity to see other people and engage with other people and meet other people in an online environment is certainly attractive. Doing something fun. I mean, I've seen companies like literally tonight, there is a conference that a company's putting on. It's basically a, um, it's kind of just a holiday celebration. Mm -hmm. And as part of it, Jack Black is going to read the night before Christmas. Oh, that's awesome. And not since John Malkovic did it on Saturday Night Live a couple of years ago, have I been this excited to hear someone <laughs> read the night before Christmas. So like, curiosity, I'm going to show up for that. I won't yeah. listen to that. So, so there are so many ways to get and keep people's attention to have, in some cases, like, you know, you want to have a business conversation. You want to do the, the challenger model with someone on an event. Sometimes you just want to have some fun. Sometimes you just want to be known as the brand that put on a good party. Yeah. Um, and look, you're not going to close an eight figure deal just because you got Jack Black on the phone, but it can certainly help you get a little more attention. So I, I'm excited to see how things continue to evolve. I think we've learned a lot, especially in the last couple months, as companies get smarter about how to create value in those virtual events. Um, live events will be back, but in the meantime, I think we can continue to have a ton of value. Yeah. And think outside the box, you know, don't have it be just an endless series and maybe serious presentations, but think outside of how you can capture people's attention and curiosity in new ways. And, you know, there's a lot of actors and musicians who, uh, Jack Black, maybe, you know, I don't know if he, he seems like he's doing all right, but you know, there are others that, you know, that are popular that, need the gigs um, and they're available. They're available to book. So um, could be great to get, you know, do an interactive music event, do, um, you know, we've done whiskey tastings and wine tastings and sending kits to folks. And just your event, you know, that you host weekly, Matt, with Latney, you know, creating community when people can't get together. That's been, you know, a, a great 
way as a CMO to interact and relate to people, share misery, uh, share joy, and move together as a community and a tribe. Well, and there's, and it's not just, you know, sort of figuring out how to create value with that, right? So A, we say, listen, you have to be head of marketing. You have to be a VP or CMO to get in. So there's some exclusivity. You know, we pro, it's a community-driven event. So it's not just a presentation. It's people mm -hmm. engaging with each other. Um, it's not confidential, but we don't record it. Yeah. You know, we allow people to sort of share on openly and honestly, we've had people cry. I mean, it's Friday morning, like last spring as people got through their week and were sort of putting on a strong face for their company and their team and their industry and their family. That's tough stuff, man. And so like to have a place where you can be amongst your peers and be yourself, um, that's pretty special, you know? And so again, that, that wasn't something that just sort of emerged sort of instantly and it's taken some time to evolve. But, you know, if you can create that, not just that kind of an event and that kind of a brand, but that kind of community, where your audience, your customers, your prospects are the content, they are the event, mm -hmm. uh, that's pretty special. Yeah, I think it is too. So kudos to you guys. What's the one piece of advice you'd like to leave our evolvers with today, Matt? Boy, I think, you know, this year has been interesting for me just to sort of re to reshuffle and reprioritize what's important to me. Uh, I did over 100,000 mi travel miles last year just domestically. I mean, it was a good year, lots of good business travel, but uh, I really enjoyed being home with my family. Uh, mm -hmm. I think as I look at 2021, look, I've got, I've got growth goals for our business. I've got things I want to do to go make money, but you know, my health and my family, uh, you know, those things, you know, my, you know, life is fleeting. My health and family are going to be what I sort of really lean on to enjoy uh, sort of, you know, enjoy my time beyond just work. And so, um, you know, I am committed to, you know, changes in my life and my travel and my business to facilitate some of that. And, um, you know, I think it's maybe oh, easy, Matt, for you to say that you own your own business. No, we all own our lives. We all own our careers. Yeah. You know, I mean, look, I have to make tough choices that are going to say, well, if I don't go on that trip, then I might not make more money. Mm -hmm. But if I don't go on that trip, I get to be home. I get to keep my workout routine. I get to do this special thing with my kids. Um, so it's trade-offs and I am more comfortable and more committed to some of those trade-offs now than I think I was last year. Here, here. I, I've definitely realized that same thing, being a road warrior and missing so much, um, just like you. I have uh, come to enjoy being home. I didn't think I would like it as much as I do. I come to enjoy <laughs> yeah. taking my dog for a walk every morning and listening to podcasts and uh, actually growing and learning more than I think I ever thought I could at home uh, because I used a lot of time on the airplane to do that before. Uh, but it's really been a good uh, exercise in getting back to a level of fitness, a level of, of family, and uh, feeling like I've got a life at home, not just one that's on the road with uh, Marriott and Delta points. So uh, I think a lot of people are realizing that uh, work-life balance in a whole new way. Um, some struggling, some embracing it, but it's definitely been that year of kind of reevaluating uh, all of that. How can the Evolver community find and reach you online, Matt? And if you're a CMO, how can they join up with the weekly uh, uh, kind of forum that you've got? Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, like, you know, we you can find us just at HeinzMarketing.com. That's H-E-I-N-Z, like the KetchupMarketing.com. And we've got 12 years of content up there, research, best practice guides, templates. Really good stuff. Um, tons of great stuff up there, all for free, so help yourself. Um, you know, I'm, I'm taking some of the best sales and marketing content I can find and publishing that on a regular basis on Twitter at Heinz Marketing. And then I'm just Matt at HeinzMarketing.com. If you, you know, have any questions about what we talked about today or if you'd like to learn more about CMO Coffee Talks, 
um, just shoot me a note. We'd love to get you involved and love to be as helpful as I can. Matt, thank you for joining us, participating in the Evolvers and helping to make it a great and growing community. And Tom, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Matt. Until next time, Evolvers keep evolving.